Part 2, Church and Synagogue in the Light of History. Chapter 3, The Earliest Church in Judaism. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised. Acts 1-4 The context for our study of Judaic heritage and the church was set in the opening two chapters. There, we sought to show from the New Testament that Jew and Gentile are seen to be inextricably bound together in the plan of God. Gentiles, who had come to faith within the early church, joined themselves to God's ancient people. They had to adjust to Israel, not the reverse. By way of brief review concerning Paul's teaching about the olive tree, Israel, Romans 11, we observed that the root and branches of that tree are holy, verse 16. In the verses which follow, 17 through 24, we establish that the root of Israel is the patriarchs, Abraham and his immediate descendants. The branches represent individual Israelites who are nourished by the sap which flows upward to them from those roots. Gentiles are depicted as not being by nature part of the cultivated olive tree Israel. Rather, they are branches from a wild olive tree who are grafted in among the others to share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Verses 17 and 24. As a new people of God, non-Jewish believers are now nourished by a rich heritage, with roots extending back to Abraham, father of the faithful. It must be emphasized that there is but one olive tree. It represents one people of God, Jew and non-Jew, fed by the same life-giving sap. A spirit of arrogance, triumphalism, or boasting is excluded. Gentiles, those who once served idols, do not support that ancient root Israel, but Israel is the root that supports them. Verse 18. Little did Paul realize, however, that his words of warning to the non-Jewish world about boastfulness and superiority would go largely unheeded. As we will point out in the next few chapters, after Paul's time, the church would be virtually severed from its Jewish roots. How did an all-Jewish movement become detached from its original milieu and then flourish as a new separate faith community? In order to understand the appalling rootlessness of today's church in regards to its Jewish origins, we must turn to the New Testament to see how the church began. By tracing briefly the early history of the church, we will be able to pinpoint some of the factors which contributed to this breaking off of the root. Jesus and His Followers The life and teachings of Jesus reveal a deep commitment to the Jewish beliefs and practices of His day. He was born of Jewish parents, Matthew 1.16, and circumcised on the eighth day in accord with Jewish law, Luke 2.21. As a boy, he celebrated Passover, Luke 2, 41-43. And as a youth, he learned by interacting with various Jewish leaders, all of whom were amazed at his understanding, Luke 2, 46-47. 
frequenting the synagogue from Sabbath to Sabbath, what, as was his custom at the start of his adult ministry, Luke 4.16, Jesus was exposed to a wide range of Jewish thought. To be sure, first century Ju Judaism was far from monolithic. Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Zealots, and other sects dotted the religious landscape. It would appear, however, that the teachings of Jesus show closest affinity to, the, to that of the Pharisees. To a certain degree, but not exclu exclusively, the rabbinic teachings of the Talmud reflect this Pharisaic teaching. It has been estimated that one can find parallels in rabbinic literature to perhaps as much as 90% of, of Jesus' teachings. Though this estimate is doubtless excessive, current research on the Synoptic Gospels is revealing in increasing measure a profoundly Jewish setting for the words of Jesus. Furthermore, Jesus' early followers were Jews. Less than three scant years after Jesus launched his public ministry, a nucleus among them would find would found the primitive Christian assembly. Jesus discipled his followers in the fashion of a typical first-century itinerant teacher of Judaism, not in synagogue classrooms, but on hillsides, in fields, and in remote locations. This Galilean carpenter's son clustered many pupils about him. Jesus was articulate and he drew much of his rich teaching material from the Hebrew scriptures and from rabbinic traditions familiar in his day. But he also taught directly on his own authority, which sometimes resulted in the inability of his disciples to understand. Mark 4, 10-13 Though the company was often wider than the twelve, Luke six thirteen and ten one, Peter, James, and John, an inner circle of three, became most prominent in the gospel narratives. But in addition to the common people Jesus discipled, some of his chief followers were Jewish leaders, John 12.42 and 19.38-39. In sum, the ministry of Jesus was focused in his words, he came to find the lost sheep of Israel, Matthew 15.24. Beginnings, a Jewish church. A cursory look at the beginnings of Christianity reveals a church that was made up exclusively of Jews. Indeed, the church was viewed as a sect within Judaism, as the book of Acts makes clear in referring to early followers of Jesus as a sect of Nazarenes, Acts 24.5. They seemed to function easily within Judaism in that they were described as enjoying the favor of all people. 247. The church was born in Jerusalem, King David's royal abode, a city with a history of prophets, priests, and kings. Jerusalem, with its sanctuary, had been the focus of Jewish religious life for over a millennium. After Jesus departed into heaven, his followers remained continually at the temple, praising God. Luke 24:53. Jesus had instructed them to stay in Jerusalem to await the coming of the Spirit, Acts 1, 4-5. A group of about 120 Jewish believers came together in an upper room for prayer, 1, 
Among them were the twelve from Galilee, one eleven and thirteen. The church had begun in embryonic form with the twelve, John twenty twenty two, but in the miraculous coming of the Holy Spirit, Acts two, it has experienced a tra- a dramatic birth. Jews from Jerusalem and from regions near and far had assembled to celebrate Shavuot. This late spring festival occurred 50 days after Passover. Shavuot was the Jewish feast of weeks. Weeks is the meaning of Hebrew Shavuot, Deuteronomy 16.10. The feast of harvest, Exodus 23.16. After New Testament times, the Jewish community came to associate this holiday with the anniversary of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. This great revelation at Sinai occurred in the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, Exodus 19.1. A special feature of Shabbat was the offering of two loaves of leavened, salted bread, baked from the freshly ripened grain, Leviticus 23.16-21 and Numbers 28.26. Throughout Bible times, Shabbat was a required pilgrim festival, Exodus 23:14-17. Annually, it brought thousands of Jews to dwell in Jerusalem at the time when the fields were ready for harvest. Note the spring ingathering of the barley in the book of Ruth. In Jesus' day, they came from every nation under heaven, Acts 2:5. Luke lists 15 of these by name. Acts 2.9-11. In his first sermon, delivered on the day of Pentecost, Shavuot, Peter addressed his audience as fellow Jews, 2.14, and men of Israel, 2.22. And he quoted to them from Joel, their own prophet, Acts 2.17-21. In Peter's second sermon, Acts 3, He referred to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. Verse 13. He also said to his Jewish hearers, You are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. Verse 25. In a style reminiscent of the ancient Hebrew prophets, Ezekiel 18.30 and 32, he called upon his Jerusalem audience to repent. Acts 3.19. This term has a rich background in biblical Judaism. In the Hebrew Bible, the verb often used to express repent is shub, which means to turn around, return, renounce. It suggests a spiritual about-face. A person turns away from his sin and goes back to the living God of Israel. Maimonides, 12th century, the greatest medieval Jewish philosopher, theologian, provides further insight into this key biblical concept. He explains that the Hebrew noun for repentance, teshuba, involves several specific steps. The first is confession, or acknowledgement of guilt. The second is regret, or expressing shame and sorrow over committing the wrong. The third step involves a strong resolution not to commit the sin again. The final step is reconciliation with God, whereby alienation has been overcome and fellowship restored. Again, 
Against this background, it is clear that Judaism never understood conversion to mean the abandoning of one's ancestral people and ancestral Jewish faith. Rather, it was to become renewed and restored in God's forgiveness and love within that same community. The activities and speeches of the apostles, as recorded in the book of Acts, give abundant evidence for the Jewishness of the earliest church. The apostle Simon, his Greek name was Peter, prayed at the temple in Jerusalem, 3.1, made a defense before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, 4.5-12, and protested when asked to kill and eat non-kosher food, 10.13-14. Furthermore, the Jewish apostles taught daily in the Jerusalem temple, 542, and had contact with the high priest, 71, and interacted with the teachers of Hebrew law, such as Gamaliel, 534. The apostle Paul, referred to by his Hebrew name, Saul, until Acts 13, the time of his first missionary venture into the Gentile world, comments on his Jewish pedigree by stating, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, i.e. Jerusalem, under, literally at the feet of, Mishnah Abut 1.4, Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today, 22.3. Paul also records that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. Philippians 3, 5. Paul was also a son of Pharisees, plural. According to Acts 23, 6, the plural here implies that even beyond his own immediate father, his forebears were Pharisees. In addition, Paul spoke in Hebrew, Acts 21.40, Greek, Hebraios, which here could also mean the Aramaic vernacular, his own ethnic tongue. At the time of Peter, James, John, and Paul, a major question confronted the primitive church. The question was not whether Jews could belong to this new spirit-born community, Joel, 2.28-29, instead the issue was whether Gentiles could, upon repentance of sin, belong to a totally Jewish community. The New Testament evidence is irrefutable about the beginnings of the church. In its origin, Christianity was Jewish to the very core. The essentially non-Jewish character of today's church is a matter of history, not a question of origins. The Hebraists and Hellenists Though the beginnings of the Jerusalem church were thoroughly Jewish, this community of earliest Christians was far from monolithic. In the first part of the book of Acts, two diverse groups of Jewish Christians appear. One group was the Hebraists, or Hebrews. These were Hebrew and or Aramaic-speaking Jews, most of whom were native to Palestine. The Hebraists kept a firm commitment to their Jewish faith and ancestral customs. With a concerned eye, 
focused upon those non-Jewish cultural influences around them. The Hebraists maintained close ties to the Jerusalem temple. The Hellenists were the other category of Jewish Christians. These Grecian Jews were, with varying degrees of strictness, Jewish in matters of faith, but adopted the Greek language and customs. Most of these Hellenistic Jews had roots in, or affinities with, the Greco-Roman world of the diaspora. Generally, they were more free-thinking and open to change than the Hebraists. In dress and thought, the Hellenists gave evidence of their daily contact with the Gentile world about them. They had to balance traditional loyalty with new challenges from life in the diaspora. But Jerusalem provided the Hellenists with a venerable center peculiar, peculiar, peculiarly their own. Stephen and the Hellenists Stephen was one of the leaders of the Hellenistic group in the Jerusalem church. He had six other Hellenists. All seven had Greek names were chosen to oversee a problem which had arisen between the Hellenistic Jewish Christians and the Hebraists. Hellenistic Jews complained that their widows had been overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Acts 6.1 The problem was solved by the seven, and the whole church was pleased. 6.3-5 This gracious and cooperative spirit shown by the Hebraists to the Hellenists was a vote cast in favor of maintaining a pluralistic unity within the Jerusalem church. Tensions soon mounted, however, as Stephen engaged in an argument over the Messiahship of Jesus in one of the synagogues in Jerusalem. Stephen was eventually brought before the Sanhedrin and charged with speaking against the temple and Mosaic religion. Acts 6, 12-13 the speech of Stephen to the Sanhedrin, Acts 7, is a moving example of a Jewish Christian delivering a Hellenistic apologetic against Jews who object to the gospel. The thrust of the speech was threatening to the Jewish religious leadership, who venerated the temple as the ultimate and final expression of true religion. For Stephen emphasized that God does not dwell in a structure. 748. Jeremiah 7.4. Furthermore, Stephen accused his Jewish brothers of rejecting the righteous one, Jesus, whose coming the prophets had predicted, Acts 7.52. In sum, this provocative messenger announced that a new order had already arrived with the Messiah. He is more important than all ancestral religion. Over this in-house Jewish disagreement, Stephen was seized and stoned to death. His martyrdom triggered a great persecution against the Jerusalem church. The apostles remained in Jerusalem, but the rest of the Jewish Christians were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. 8.1. The persecution and consequent dispersion was directed mainly toward the Hellenists of the Jerusalem church, the group within which Stephen had been prominent. From this point on, at least until the end of the Second Jewish Revolt in AD 135, the Jerusalem church appears to have been made up almost exclusively of Hebraists. Outreach 
to Gentiles. In his providence, God, God used the stoning of Stephen to propel the early Christian witness beyond the confines of the mother congregation. Before his ascension, Jesus had instructed his disciples that they were to begin witnessing to him in Jerusalem and then move to all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Acts 1.8 The book of Acts, particularly from chapter 8 onward, chronicles these events. The first Jew to take the gospel outside Jerusalem was Philip. As one of the Hellenist leaders in the Jerusalem church, 6.5, he was doubtless prepared to move with greater ease in broader cultural settings. His travels took him northward to Samaria, then to Gaza, then along to coastal road to Azotus, Ashdod, and Caesarea. When the Jerusalem church learned how the Samaritans had accepted Philip's message, they sent Peter and John to Hebraists to minister there, 8, 12 through 14. This vanguard outreach by Philip paved the way so that Peter and John might be able to preach the gospel in many Samaritan villages, 825. Thus, the Jerusalem church was starting to confirm the ministry of the Hellenists. The Hebraists and Hellenists would still have to resolve other problems and tensions, but it was clear that God was sovereignly working through both groups to further effect his plan to declare his glory among the nations. Psalm 96, 3. Yet, in the course of daily events, each group was being true to its own vision. The Special Calling of Paul The next recorded event in the outworking of God's purpose to reach the Gentile world was the radical redirection of Saul, Paul, while on the road to Damascus. Acts 9. Though scholars typically describe this life-changing experience as a conversion, it would be more correctly labeled a call. In this vein, Christer Stendhal has shrewdly observed, here is not that change of religion that we commonly associate with the word conversion. Serving the one and same God, Paul receives a new and special calling in God's service. God's Messiah asks him as a Jew to bring God's message to the Gentiles. As we have emphasized, at no point in his life did Paul leave Judaism. Rather, he understood his relationship to the Messiah as the full blooming of his Jewish faith. A diaspora Jew from Tarsus, Paul was uniquely equipped for this Gentile mission. He was knowledgeable in the rich legacy of his people through his Pharisaic training under the famous Jewish leader Gamaliel. But being a Roman citizen, Acts 22, 25-29, from a Mediterranean seaport, he was also thoroughly acquainted with the prevailing customs of the Greco-Roman world. Furthermore, many of Paul's letters reveal an intimate knowledge of the Septuagint. This Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, originating around 250 B.C., and written in the lingua franca of Paul's day, was an enormous asset in making Paul's message understandable throughout the non-Jewish world. Before his call, 
Paul sought to root out, even as far as Damascus, any believers he had driven out of the Jerusalem church. Acts 9, 1-3 But his heavenly commission turned him into a fiery apostle to the Gentiles, the most influential single voice in the early church. Further Success Among the Gentiles After Paul's call, Peter brought the gospel to Cornelius, a centurion in the Roman army who lived in the major port city of Caesarea. Through Peter's preaching and the action of the Holy Spirit, Cornelius came to faith, Acts 10, 44-48. The text states that Cornelius was a God-fearer, 10-2. A God-fearer was a Gentile who followed certain religious practice, Jewish religious practices, but stopped short of the circumcision required of all full proselytes. At this point in the early history of the church, in a remarkable yet logical way, God set about to accomplish the furthering of his word in various cities through these God-fearers, who carried with them an attraction and love for synagogue worship in the Jewish way of life. Because they were sensitive and open to Jewish teaching, God-fearers served as a natural bridge between Hebraic and Hellenistic cultures. Thus, they became the foundational core for many of the churches Paul visited on his journeys. Acts 13.16 and 43, 16.14, 17.4 and 17.18.7. Indeed, this was the Christian starting point of the Gentile mission as compared to Jewish reserve with the reference to God-fearers. In the missionary practice of Paul, he always preaches at synagogue worship and can thus address the God-fearers better than the Jews themselves. Thus, in the initial spread of Christianity from its Jewish womb in Jerusalem throughout the Mediterranean world, we see a Jewish orientation to worship and life already being practiced by this God-fearing nucleus of non-Jews. God-fearers are important for our present study, for they provide a fur further line of evidence that churches founded in major cities of the Gentile world were not necessarily prone to de-Judaization from the very start. When word reached the Jerusalem church that Cornelius had responded positively to the gospel, a controversy broke out about Peter. Acts 11, 1-3 the Cornelius incident underscored some of the obstacles that the Jerusalem church had to face if Gentiles were to be brought into the church. At the start, Peter was very reluctant to associate with Gentile with a Gentile or visit one. 10.28 Furthermore, the Jewish followers of Jesus at first did not know how to handle the fact, i.e., they were astonished that the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, 1045. In addition, certain of the Hebraists, the circumcised, in the Jerusalem congregation, separatistic and overly zealous for the law, objected that Peter would eat with uncircumcised men, 11.3. But the early church had no blueprint to follow 
to resolve such different difficulties. For the time being, therefore, they were content to accept non-Jewish believers primarily on experiential grounds. God had done it. 11, 17-18, 15, 8-12. The Gentiles continued to accept the gospel, especially from the preaching of Paul and Barnabas. Syrian Antioch, located on the Orontes River, several hundred miles north of Jerusalem, became one of the first thriving centers of Christian outreach. Acts 11, 19-30 From Antioch, which had easy access to the Mediterranean coast, Paul and Barnabas set sail on a missionary tour. Traveling through Cyprus to Asia Minor, modern-day southern Turkey, they preached in Pisidian Antioch, 13, 13 through 52, in Iconium, 14, 1 through 7, in Lystra and in Derbe, 14, 8 through 20. Then they returned to, to Syrian Antioch to report to the church which had sent them out, 13, 3, 14, 27. The gospel was now beginning to penetrate westward into the Gentile world. Soon, Paul would eye even Spain ambitiously, Romans fifteen twenty four. For the immediate future, however, a crisis, a crisis arose in the church at Antioch. It was an issue that Paul and the other apostles would have to face head on. The place of Jewish law in a church which had become increasingly populated by non-Jews. The Council of Jerusalem the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 is the watershed for the entire book of Acts. The council was called because certain men had come from Judea to Antioch and insisted that circumcision and adherence to the law of Moses were essential for salvation. Paul and Barnabas debated the issue with them. Then the Antioch assembly sent Paul and Barnabas as delegates to Jerusalem to discuss the issue with the apostles there. James, the brother of the Lord, enjoyed a position of leadership and respect in the Jerusalem church. He presided over the council, which convened about A.D. 49. Jews from the Pharisaic or circumcision party who believed in Jesus presented the issue for discussion. Their position, essentially that of the Judaizers discussed in chapter 2 above, required non-Jews to enter the church in the same manner that Gentile proselytes entered Judaism. Peter addressed the council first. A number of years earlier, he had witnessed Cornelius and his household receiving the Holy Spirit, followed by water baptism, much like the Jerusalem believers in Shavuot, Acts 2. Peter apparently had not insisted that circumcision be an essential element in the salvation of the Gentile Cornelius. The text is silent on this point. Accordingly, in the presence of the council, Peter argued that non-Jewish believers bear no heavy yoke of Jewish law. See Acts 15.10. The council handed down its decision. Non-Jews entering the church should not have the Jewish rite of circumcision imposed on them. In its decision, the council emphasized the principle of God's free grace in Christ. 
Gentiles were to know that to stand in the liberty of Christ meant no preconditions or potentially entangling qualifications. So stated, the council ruled out any theological necessity of circumcision for righteousness. Gentiles should be clear on this point. Salvation was a gift of God. One could not procure or obtain it by mere conformity by, to any ceremonial ritual. While Gentiles were not subject to the ceremonial law, the council did request that they support Jewish-Gentile fellowship in the church. That is, that they respect and honor the conscience of their Jewish brothers and sisters. Accordingly, the Jerusalem apostles specified four areas, most of which were associated with pagan or idolatrous practices. Gentiles should avoid 1. Food polluted by idols. 2. Eating blood or meat from which the blood had not been drained in a kosher manner. 3. The meat of strangled animals, a guideline similar to the preceding. And 4. Fornication, that is, pagan standards concerning sex. See Acts 15, 20, and 29. Furthermore, in this apostolic declaration, it is probably correct to see a version of the Noachian commandments possibly abbreviated or, or in the form current in the first century. The rabbis defined the Noachian commandments as seven commandments binding on the descendants of Noah, Gentiles, that is, on all mankind. Richard Langenecker, a scholar of early Christianity, sums up the significance of the Jerusalem Council. The decision reached by the Council must be considered one of the boldest and magnanimous in the annals of church history. He concludes further, while still attempting to minister exclusively to Jews themselves, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem refused to impede the progress of that other branch of the Christian mission, whose every success inevitably meant only further difficulty and oppression for them. We must emphasize, however, that the sins of triumphalism, arrogance, and pride manifest through a future gentilized church, not the decision of the Jerusalem Council created Jewish oppression. The, the church failed to remember the root, Israel. Romans 11.18 The council communicated their decision by letter to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. It spoke clearly to the question provoked by those who were seeking to Judaize. Simply stated, that question was, does a Gentile have to observe all the laws of the Jews in order to be a Christian? The council gave a definitive answer. It said, No.